Of all the paradoxes in human psychology, maybe the saddest and most perplexing is that of childhood trauma. Far too many people suffer intensely as children. Some of them go on to achieve incredible things in their adult lives, particularly in the arts. Many renowned creators draw their greatest inspiration from their own pain. Others sadly collapse under the weight of their adverse childhood experiences. And then there are the people who do both, excel and collapse. Those who succeed beyond their wildest dreams, yet are unable to heal their earliest wounds. Like Marilyn Monroe, a legend by the age of 25 and dead at 36. Though her years were short, she left an indelible mark on Hollywood. And on those who knew her personally, including Ella Fitzgerald, who shared many things with Marilyn, including a history of childhood trauma. Marilyn Monroe is remembered mostly as the ultimate blonde bombshell, but Ella Fitzgerald was one of the few who saw a side of her rarely covered in the press. Most fans weren't interested in Marilyn's radical progressive politics. But Ella was, because Ella watched Marilyn not just voice her beliefs, but act on them. Marilyn used her fame to help Ella reach a new level of stardom, changing both women's lives forever. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Obituaries, a Spotify original from Parcast. Over the next 10 episodes, we're looking at unlikely pairs, giants in their respective fields, who left a deep and lasting impression on the world and each other. Some of these pairs considered themselves allies, some partners and some bitter rivals. But in every case, their monumental legacies are inextricably intertwined. In this episode, we're exploring the friendship between Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe. Both women had found a calling in the performing arts, both had been married and divorced at a young age, and both were headed for generation-defining celebrity. 
Though her private letters reveal an insightful and well-read woman with strong beliefs, Marilyn never shed her image as a, quote, dumb blonde. And Ella Fitzgerald, a black woman of size, found doors closed to her in the entertainment industry that would have swung wide open for a thin white woman with her incredible voice. Today, we're exploring how these two phenomenal performers found understanding, camaraderie, and comfort in their friendship, even though it wasn't fated to last forever. We'll have all that and more coming up. Young Ella Fitzgerald just wanted to dance. Born in 1917 and raised mostly in Yonkers, New York, she grew up admiring glamorous flappers. But even though both her parents worked, they were poor. Ella had to begin working part-time in her early teens, practicing her dancing in between odd jobs. In 1932, tragedy struck Ella's family. Her mother was involved in a car accident and died of her injuries. Her stepfather took care of her for a year until Ella was sent to live with her aunt, Virginia, in Harlem. But with the Great Depression at its peak, Ella had to earn her keep. So the local mob set her up with a job as a lookout for a brothel. Her job was to knock on the door to warn customers if the police were nearby. This led Ella into a number of run-ins with the law. Between her work for the mob and her lousy attendance record at school, Ella became known as a troublemaker. At least, that's how the local authorities saw her. If she'd been an upper-class white girl, maybe someone would have sympathized with a recently orphaned child struggling with grief and loneliness. Instead, Ella was labeled a troubled teen and sentenced to the New York State Training School for Girls, a segregated reformatory school. Black students were housed in the school's oldest, most dilapidated residence halls. On at least one occasion, Ella was locked in the basement of her dorm and, in the words of one of the school's former superintendents, all but tortured. In 1934, at the age of 17, Ella was released into homelessness in Harlem. She survived by couch surfing and dancing for tips on 125th Street. On November 21, 1934, Ella and her friends attended Amateur Night, a weekly tradition at the Apollo Theater. After the main show, anyone could put their name in a hat for a chance to compete in a talent show. Ella's friends made a pact. They'd all put their names in the hat. There was a huge crowd, so none of them really expected to have to take the stage. Originally, Ella planned to dance if her name was drawn. But the main show featured a dance duo so talented, Ella lost her nerve. When her name was pulled out of the hat, she decided to sing instead. Ella hadn't prepared a song. Scrambling, she mangled her first few notes, and the crowd began to boo. The master of ceremonies quieted the rowdy crowd, stopped the house band, and gave Ella a chance to start again. This time, her rich, soulful voice filled the theater. After she finished her song, the crowd cheered so loud, the rafters shook. Ella won Amateur Night and gained hundreds of new fans. But her first singing job didn't come until the next year, when band leader Chick Webb hired her to sing in his group. In 1938, at the age of 21, she recorded her first hit record, A Tisket, A Tasket. 
It debuted at number 10 on the Hit Parade charts and made number one within two weeks. When Chick died in 1939, the band was renamed Ella Fitzgerald and Her Famous Band. At 22, Ella was a bona fide star. We don't know when Marilyn Monroe first put an Ella Fitzgerald record on her turntable, but we know where Marilyn was in 1939. Just like Ella before her, she was bouncing through a series of unstable and often abusive homes. Marilyn was born in Los Angeles as Norma Jean Mortensen. When she was eight, her mother suffered a mental health crisis and was institutionalized and diagnosed with schizophrenia. Just like Ella, Marilyn had no relationship with her biological father. She found herself effectively orphaned at age seven, even though both of her parents were alive. For a while, her mother's best friend, Clara Grace Goddard, took her in. At first, this worked wonders in the lonely little girl's life. Goddard cultivated her foster daughter's interest in acting. She told her that someday she'd be a star. But this arrangement didn't last. Marilyn ended up living in a total of 11 different foster homes all over Los Angeles, plus a few stints at an orphanage. Worse still, at least one of her foster parents was sexually abusive. Marilyn later spoke of surviving a sexual assault at age 11. All this on top of losing her mother to mental illness. Marilyn dropped out of school to focus on the quickest way out of foster care, marriage. At age 16, she wed a neighbor, 21-year-old James Doherty. James insisted on a traditional, patriarchal marriage. Marilyn wrote to Goddard to say, My husband really keeps me busy cleaning the house and fixing meals. Everybody told me that it is quite a responsibility being a housewife, and boy, I'm finding it out but it really is a lot of fun. As a merchant marine, James was deployed to serve in World War II in 1944. Marilyn did her part for the war effort by working in a munitions factory. One day, a photographer showed up to take photos of the workers. At the time, women doing manual labor was such a novelty, it was considered newsworthy. At least when it was middle-class white women doing the labor. Ella Fitzgerald's mother held multiple physically taxing jobs until her death, and she never made the papers. Be that as it may, Marilyn caught the photographer's eye immediately. He asked her to quit her job to become his full-time model. Against her husband's will, Marilyn signed a modeling contract and began posing for magazines. Then, in August of 1946, at the age of 20, she inked her first acting contract with 20th Century Fox and began going by Marilyn Monroe, which she thought fit a movie star better than Norma Jean. When her husband James found out, he ordered her to stop acting. Instead, in September of 1946, she divorced him. Now, Marilyn was free to be Marilyn full-time. About the only thing she held on to from her Norma Jean years was her politics. After living with foster families in majority black neighborhoods, including Compton and Watts, she firmly believed in racial equality. And having been an abused child, she tended to favor the underdog in any sort of political dispute. 
One other thing that Marilyn retained from childhood on was her taste in music. She loved jazz and swing, from the steamy duet cover of My Heart Belongs to Daddy to the tender and mournful What's the Matter With Me. Ella Fitzgerald's voice was part of Marilyn's personal soundtrack. Through the late 40s and early 50s, Ella mostly played small, black jazz clubs. Her agent tried booking higher-paying gigs, but white nightclub owners turned Ella away, even though her first single sold a million copies. Ella loved all her fans, of course, including, even especially, the audiences at those little jazz clubs. But she wanted to make the biggest possible impact on music. She wanted to reach everyone who might enjoy her sound. With a talent like hers, Ella was destined for stardom, no matter what stood in her way. And the same proved true of Marilyn, though she quickly learned that fame has its downsides. In 1953, 27-year-old Marilyn Monroe starred in her first blockbuster hit, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. But the studios that cast her saw her as a sex symbol, nothing more. When she asked to be cast in something other than a romantic comedy, her contract was suspended. Her personal life wasn't going so well either. After divorcing her first husband, Marilyn began a relationship with 39-year-old baseball star Joe DiMaggio. Their physical chemistry was incredible. Joe described their intimate encounters as, quote, like the gods were fighting. And fans love seeing the world's greatest baseball player out on the town with Hollywood's most alluring actress. But the fans didn't see the dark moments when Joe's jealousy took over. Like Marilyn's first husband, Joe pressured her to stop acting to be a housewife. Meanwhile, 36-year-old Ella was in the middle of divorcing her second husband, Ray Brown. He was a fine bassist, and she loved to sing while he played, but their showbiz marriage didn't work. They were apart too often and for too long. Marilyn and Ella lived in two very different worlds, but they shared so many experiences in common. Both were abused, orphaned children. Both found themselves limited by society's insistence on judging them by their physical appearance. And by the end of 1954, both would be twice divorced. Marilyn and Joe DiMaggio married in January of 1954. They chose not to have a church wedding because it was a second marriage for both. So they went to City Hall, followed by a horde of screaming fans and paparazzi. Joe wanted children, but 28-year-old Marilyn suffered from endometriosis and couldn't conceive. According to Joe's son from his first marriage, physical fights between the couple were commonplace. According to author C. David Heyman, on one occasion, Joe tore an earring out of Marilyn's earlobe. During another argument, Marilyn tried to run out of the house, and Joe reportedly dragged her back by her hair. Marilyn's iconic September 1954 subway great photo shoot was the last straw. Joe flew into an incandescent rage. He expressed his disgust to Marilyn so cruelly, she filed for divorce after only nine months of marriage. Marilyn wept as she announced her divorce, citing mental cruelty. Joe didn't fight the divorce, and it was granted before the month was out. But he continued to harass and intimidate both Marilyn and any man she dated. 
Marilyn's friend, gossip columnist Sidney Skolsky, thought a distraction was in order. In December of 1954, he offered to escort Marilyn to an Ella Fitzgerald concert at the Tiffany Club. Marilyn was a longtime listener, but hadn't seen Ella sing live. She was delighted by the idea and dressed to the nines for the show. She had no idea this evening would spark a friendship that changed both women's lives and careers. That's coming up next. Now back to the story. In December of 1954, 29-year-old Marilyn Monroe saw 38-year-old Ella Fitzgerald perform at the Tiffany Club. Marilyn had long been a fan, but this would be her first time hearing Ella sing live. Ella captured Marilyn's heart. She filled the Tiffany Club with so much energy and passion that Marilyn couldn't help wondering why she wasn't playing the biggest venues in the country. Of course, the two performers' respective assistants and managers arranged for them to meet backstage. The two women hit it off immediately and began chatting about their hopes and dreams for the future. That's when Ella brought up that she was hoping to play them a combo, a world-famous nightclub on the Sunset Strip known as the Playground of the Stars. Impulsively, Marilyn responded that she'd throw Ella a party to celebrate whenever that booking happened. It was a gracious gesture typical of Marilyn. She was known for thinking of small ways to help others. When on set, she occasionally slipped $100 bills into crew members' purses and wallets, like a reverse pickpocket. Ella and Marilyn met as fans of one another's work, but parted as friends. But both women were too busy to spend much time developing their friendship. Marilyn was in the middle of a career crisis as she had just fired her agent and decided to move to New York following negative reviews of her performance in There's No Business Like Show Business. Ella, for her part, was under new management herself. Norman Grand saw her true potential and had arranged for her first international tour. Now, he had Ella playing his Jazz at the Philharmonic concert series. In early 1955, Ella and her management decided it was time for her to headline at the Macombo. The club had a reputation for launching performers into global stardom. Ella was ready, but the Macombo wasn't. The vast majority of acts booked at this legendary venue were white, and the few black women who had taken the Macombo stage were slim, curvaceous ingenues who shimmied sensually across the stage. 38-year-old plus-sized Ella Fitzgerald, who preferred to simply stand in front of her microphone and sing, wasn't thought to have the same crossover appeal to white audiences. That's not to say Ella wasn't beautiful. Her evening dresses were custom-made by Zelda Wynn Valdez, a legendary black fashion designer who played a role in designing the original Playboy bunny costumes. Even though Ella confessed to some insecurity about her looks, her fans thought she was gorgeous. Little girls dreamed about growing up to wear her long furs and chiffon gowns. Still, even at her most dressed up, Ella was a glamour goddess, but not a sex symbol. The Macombo told Ella they couldn't book her. Marilyn found out about this and decided to give Ella a boost. She got in touch with the owner of the Macombo and made it known that if Ella Fitzgerald appeared on his stage for a week, Marilyn Monroe would be at a front table every night along with her personal friends. 
She didn't have to explain how big a draw that would be. 29-year-old Marilyn wasn't even at the peak of her fame yet, but she was already so beloved she couldn't buy a sandwich without being mobbed by fans and paparazzi. Not to mention, all of her friends were A-listers, too. With Marilyn's endorsement, the booking went through. Ella Fitzgerald was hired to play the Macombo for a week in March of 1955. On opening night, not only did Marilyn Monroe keep her promise to show up and sit at a front table, she brought Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra with her. And by the end of the show, they were very glad they came. Ella could put nightclub audiences in the mood for love just by singing like an angel. No sensual shimmying necessary. Marilyn kept her promise to show up every night, though she probably needn't have. By the end of that first week, The club owner was so sold on Ella, he extended her booking for another seven nights. In Ella's own estimation, this was the gig that changed the trajectory of her career. She later told Ms. Magazine, After that, I never had to play a small jazz club again. While Ella skyrocketed to a new level of fame, Marilyn was going through a rebirth of her own. And Ella had a hand to play in that story, too. After her move to New York, Marilyn was determined to be respected as a serious actress. She formed her own production company, took acting classes with method acting pioneer Lee Strasberg, and subjected herself to Freudian psychoanalysis. Her goal was to improve her artistry in every way she could, in order to finally get cast in more than just dumb blonde roles. As part of this push to master her craft, Marilyn worked on her singing. That's where Ella came in. Marilyn actively studied her friend's vocal style. It's rumored that one of Marilyn's vocal coaches ordered her to listen to Ella Fitzgerald's album, Ella Sings the George and Ira Gershwin Songbook, 100 times. 1955 was a year of humility and renewal for Marilyn. Her lawyers got her out of her contract with Fox Studios, so she couldn't be forced to play any more unwanted roles. She studied acting alongside novice actresses. They got to see Marilyn as she really was, shy, sweet, thoughtful, and sad. Strasberg's teaching method focused on getting students to use emotional memories from their own lives in their acting. More than once, Marilyn broke down in tears during class, remembering her difficult childhood. During these years, Marilyn and Ella kept in touch, but their paths were beginning to diverge. The two women had completely different ideas about how to move forward from their traumatic childhoods. Marilyn was leaning into her trauma in order to become a stronger actress, while Ella hated talking about her past. She never told the public about her time in reform school. It was discovered only through government records. When reporters asked her about it, she refused to answer. The two women's lifestyles were diverging in other ways as well. Ella was increasingly calm and practical as her star rose. To protect her voice, she chose not to drink alcohol or smoke. Drugs were out of the question. On nights off, she liked to watch soap operas. Marilyn, on the other hand, lost control of her turbulent emotions as she struggled to redefine herself. Between psychoanalysis, method acting, her on-again, off-again, toxic relationship with Joe DiMaggio, and her new romance with playwright Arthur Miller, 
she was totally overwhelmed. When she finally landed a new and improved acting contract in the fall of 1955, it only put more pressure on her. Now she had the contractual right to choose her own films, but if she transitioned into serious roles and flopped, she'd be a laughingstock. To keep herself going, she increasingly relied on alcohol and pills. Marilyn had begun taking barbiturates and amphetamines early in her career. This was typical of starlets at the time. Doctors handed the pills out like candy to help young actresses manage both their weight and their brutal filming schedules. As Ella and Marilyn's lifestyles diverged, they spent little time together but remained devoted to one another. Asked about her favorite singers in an interview, Marilyn replied, Well, my very favorite person, and I love her as a person as well as a singer, I think she's the greatest, and that's Ella Fitzgerald. Ella returned the favor, telling reporters she owed a great debt to Marilyn. And they did have at least one more run-in that highlighted Marilyn's commitment to a friend's career. At some point after the Macombo gigs, Marilyn decided to fly to Colorado to see Ella perform on tour. Upon arriving at the venue, Marilyn was invited to enter by the front door, while Ella, being a black woman, was asked to go around to the side entrance. Marilyn stood outside and made a scene, refusing to enter the club unless Ella walked in with her through the front door. Marilyn made clear that her friend was the evening's headliner. They should be rolling out the red carpet, not shooing her towards a service entrance. By this point, everyone in America knew that Marilyn could summon the press at will. The club owner was quick to placate her by showing Ella the respect she deserved lest his club be covered very unfavorably in the next morning's papers. Word got around, and pretty soon, no venue dared treat Ella Fitzgerald like anything less than the legend she was. Ella certainly could stand on her own merits. She's one of the greatest singers of all time, after all. But she clearly appreciated Marilyn's allyship, telling reporters that Marilyn was ahead of her time, but didn't know it herself. Likely a reference to the fact that Marilyn considered it obvious that people of all races should be treated equally. Marilyn's boyfriend, Arthur Miller, surely approved. He was one of the most vocally anti-racist white writers of his generation. Marilyn loved him for his intelligence and passion, even though the two made something of an odd couple. Sadly, just as their relationship was getting serious, drinking and drugs began to take over Marilyn's life, causing Ella and Marilyn to drift even farther apart. One was headed for a tragic fate at a young age, the other for a life of workaholism at the cost of her health. But they would both shape their respective art forms forever, just as they had shaped each other. Up next, Marilyn's tragic death and Ella's long career. Now, back to the story. At the start of 1956, 30-year-old Marilyn Monroe finally got her dearest wish, control of her acting career. Her new contract with 20th Century Fox was hailed as a win for creatives everywhere. The same celebrity magazines that had mocked her as a dumb blonde now hailed her as a shrewd businesswoman. But this change coincided with the rapid deterioration of her mental and physical health. 
She was juggling at least two men, playwright and left-wing radical Arthur Miller, and the abusive ex-husband she still loved, Joe DiMaggio. Her endometriosis pain was getting worse, and she was increasingly dependent on prescription amphetamines and barbiturates. Meanwhile, 39-year-old Ella Fitzgerald was finally attaining the success she deserved. In 1956, she released Ella Fitzgerald Sings the Cole Porter Songbook, an album that would become widely beloved. This release was the first of her new era as a crossover star, and it launched a series of songbooks that would become Ella's most iconic works, cementing her place in musical history. The songbooks would also bring Ella her first two Grammy Awards in 1958, a year when she won both Best Jazz Performance Soloist and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for two different albums in her songbook series. She was nothing if not prolific. She stayed in the recording studio from dawn until dusk, working to build a lasting legacy. Ella had no vices other than work, There was little drama in her personal life. Her second ex-husband, bassist Ray Brown, continued to be a close friend. They even performed together long after their divorce. She never had children of her own, but she quietly donated to children's welfare causes throughout her career. Somehow, Ella was able to accept her past, using her traumatic childhood memories as a driving force for her art and her career. But Marilyn never learned to do the same. Even psychoanalysis only worsened her fears about the future. When she was a small child, Marilyn had overheard her various caregivers discussing her mother's mental illness. She feared she was destined for the same fate. She'd been able to push that fear aside for a time with help from a cornucopia of pharmaceuticals. Now, as she entered her 30s, she kept thinking about her mother's breakdown. Marilyn wondered if she would someday be found screaming at her delusions. Somewhat ironically, that fear drove her deeper into depression and addiction. After she married Arthur Miller in June of 1956, the couple started trying for a baby. In 1957, their efforts led to an ectopic pregnancy, a non-viable type of pregnancy that often must be terminated to save the mother's life. The couple conceived again in 1958, but the pregnancy was lost to miscarriage. Marilyn felt inadequate as a wife and incomplete without a child. Again, she turned to her pill bottles to deal with her mental and physical suffering. On set, she was giving marvelous performances, but her behavior was erratic. During filming of Some Like It Hot, she showed up late, forgot her lines, and demanded that the director, Billy Wilder, shoot an incredible number of retakes to accommodate her perfectionism. Even if everyone else on set was satisfied, inevitably, Marilyn wouldn't be. Marilyn's colleagues didn't know how much she was struggling. There were rumors of her miscarriages and relationship troubles, of course, but nothing was confirmed. It seemed, to those working with Marilyn, that fame had gone to her head. Yet she'd never been a better actor. Some Like It Hot was a blockbuster hit. Marilyn won the Golden Globe for Best Actress. This ushered in the period of Marilyn's life that has been most heavily discussed in the media, her simultaneous rising star and downward spiral. 
even as she was writing herself into the history books as a legend, Marilyn saw her mental health deteriorate. The long-term effects of drug use were catching up with her body. The friends who had once provided a stabilizing influence, like Ella, reportedly no longer wanted to be around her. In February of 1961, Marilyn was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital. She called all her friends for help. Only Joe DiMaggio agreed to get her released, which he did by threatening to tear the hospital down brick by brick. Later that year, Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald were photographed together for the last time. In that final photo, it's apparent how both women had aged and changed since they were first pictured together at the Tiffany Club in 1954. 35-year-old Marilyn looks like she's in the middle of telling a joke, her eyes fluttering shut as she gestures with both hands. Her iconic blonde hair is sideswept rather than pin-curled as she wore it in the 50s. Smile lines are just beginning to show on her face, and she has something of a faraway look. Ella, at 44, has her arm around Marilyn. Her close-cropped hair is flecked with a few streaks of white. She stares right into the camera, smiling politely. She always liked to tell reporters about her cousin George's advice on social climbing, smile and people will like you. A year later, on August 5, 1962, Marilyn would be found dead in her bed, surrounded by empty pill bottles. Her body contained not just one lethal dose of barbiturates, but several. Whether she died by suicide or homicide has been a question for the ages. The police and most modern authorities favor the suicide explanation, but rumors circulated in Hollywood for years that she was murdered. Lingering questions aside, though, Marilyn's death at the age of 36 left her loved ones and fans bereft. She was one of the most mourned public figures of all time. There was so much public interest in reading stories about her death, nearly every major newspaper in the country reported a surge of new subscribers that month. Many of Marilyn's friends blamed the paparazzi and the press for her death. Not only did gossip rags stalk her and publish intimate details of her private life, some reporters made up salacious stories about her, and the same publications that sexualized her for their own benefit shamed her for being photographed in the nude. The tragedy of Marilyn's death can't overshadow the legacy of her incredible career. Even today, many leading ladies count her among their greatest inspirations. She remains one of the most recognizable faces on earth, next to figures like Michael Jackson and Elvis Presley. And it's hard to imagine a time, now or in the future, when the words blonde bombshell won't bring to mind an image of Marilyn on that subway grate, laughing as her white dress billows. Ella dealt with the loss of her friend the way she dealt with most things. She threw herself into her work. And what phenomenal work it was. Ella crossed over from jazz to pop and back. She sang with all the greats of her era, including Frank Sinatra and Louis Armstrong, among others. She was a fixture on musical variety television shows like The Ed Sullivan Show. The Grand Dame of Jazz could have retired the day Marilyn died, and she'd still have been a legend. But she kept right on performing, recording, and winning awards, including 14 Grammys over the span of her career. 
but perhaps her favorite honor was the National Medal of Arts, presented to her in 1987 by President Ronald Reagan, shortly after her 70th birthday. Aging was hard on Ella. She refused to stop performing, even after being diagnosed with diabetes and having a valve in her heart replaced at the age of 69. Perhaps her punishing work schedule kept her going by giving her something to live for, but it also meant she never really gained control of her diabetes. Ella's final performance was at Carnegie Hall in 1991, her 26th appearance at the storied venue. At 74 years old, Ella Fitzgerald could still fill any room with her impressive voice. And she had plenty to choose from for her set list. Over the course of her career, she recorded over 200 albums. Naturally, that final Carnegie Hall audience gave Ella a standing ovation. Ella retired too late to save her health. Her diabetes got so bad that just two years after her last show, she had both legs amputated at the knees. The surgery was hard on her aging body, and she remained mostly at home after the procedure. On June 15, 1996, Ella Fitzgerald died at the age of 79. Her music remains beloved today, and her songbook series represents one of the greatest achievements in the history of American music. Just as Marilyn continues to inspire actors, young singers still play Ella Fitzgerald's records over and over, learning to imitate her rich tone and powerful voice. Marilyn and Ella were only in each other's lives for a few years, and their friendship was strained by their differences, but their similarities tied their legacies together. Ella's voice helped Marilyn find her own voice, and Marilyn's friendship helped Ella gain the respect and the audiences she deserved. They'll both be remembered as legends, but they'd surely remember each other as friends and kindred spirits. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Obituaries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode on the linked legacies of two groundbreaking iconoclasts. Obituaries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Obituaries was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Chelsea Wood and Haley Milliken. Obituaries stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. Carter Roy.